Production. Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink. Welcome to Christagenia Saturdays. It is Saturday, March 31st, 2012. Quarter of the year's over already. It just started. I can't wait till December 21st. That, that'll be fun. Tonight I'm going to discuss a subject. I, I wrote an editorial on it this month. Uh, actually, last week, right? I'm running. I'm running a little late this month for, for the um, for the Saxon Messenger, and, and it, it's um, it, it's not a, a pleasant subject to talk about. It really isn't. It, it's pedophilia. It, it's child molestation, child abuse, missing children, of, of which there are tens of thousands every year, and, and the mainstream media doesn't really say a peep about it. It, it it's absolutely nuts that every once in a while the mainstream media will catch on to a particular case of a missing child and, and, and let's say a father who, who is distraught and, and misses his son or his daughter and, and absconds with the child away from the mother who has um, court custody. And, and cases like that, and, and the media goes berserk and covers them until everybody's sick of hearing them, right? And, and the, the 50,000 or so children that are never found every year well, we don't hear a whole lot about that. And there's a whole lot of other hypocrisy in the media that we'll talk about and, and incorporate into this, into this topic tonight. Um, the, the, the paper I'm about to present is a little longer than, than the editorial on the Saxon Messenger, but the editorial on the Saxon Messenger is accompanied with a lot of the resources that, that I used in, in, in um, compiling the, the essay, right? This is Lambs to the Slaughter. This month in the Saxon Messenger, we are reprinting a modern English version of Chaucer's The Prioress's Tale. The Prioress's Tale is a story about young Hugh of Lincoln, who lived and died in the 13th century. Nowadays, when the Canterbury Tales are reprinted, the story is not always, but often omitted from publication. It is about a young boy killed by the Jews in what is commonly called a Jewish ritual murder, which is also sometimes referred to as a case of blood libel. Similar circumstances surrounded the deaths of many other young, usually boys, but young boys and girls of medieval and of modern Europe. It should be no wonder with the prevalence of Jews in society now, that many children each year are still disappearing. It is not recorded after Roman times that any Jews lived in England after the Saxon conquest, up until the time of the Norman invasion. However, Jews did, and, and this is well recorded, Jews came to England with the Normans, and in the 12th century, they were able to create settlements in many large English towns under the license and the protection of the kings. In these places, the Jews soon became quite unpopular for their pandering and their usury, things which Christians were barred from and which only Jews could practice. This alone made Jews despised by the people because it fed on the weak members of the community. However, the kings found them useful. The kings found the Jews to be a useful and a convenient source of tax revenue. The Jew would feed on the weak, 
and the king could heavily tax the Jew. The Jew still managed to amass wealth at a far faster rate than if he had actually ever engaged in labor and was able to acquire or establish many other businesses in those towns through his profits from usury and other seedy endeavors, which made him despised all the more. Once the Jews became established as a special and protected class in the towns of old England, Christian children began disappearing. Some of the bodies were found, and we shall never know how many were not found because, so far as we could tell, such records were never kept. If they are kept, they're not available. One of the better summaries of the known history of Jewish ritual murder of Christian children in England, which also mentions cases from elsewhere in Europe, is a book called My Irrelevant Defense, being meditations inside, jail, and out on Jewish ritual murder, written by Arnold S. Lees in 1938. In it, Lees Least describes the recorded circumstances surrounding the deaths of William of Norwich, Simon of Trent, and several other famous and lesser-known cases. And Jews were believed to be the culpable perpetrators in all of them. Many of the bodies of the victims were clearly crucified or sacrificed, and severe repercussions against Jews often followed such discoveries. Lees shows that following a long history of such cases, one month after a Jew, Isaac de Poulet, was detained for the murder of a Christian boy at Oxford, King Edward I issued his decree, expelling the Jews from England. There is then, and that was in 1290, of course, right? There is then every reason to believe that it was the Oxford murder, and this is Lisa's words, which proved the last straw in toleration, toleration of the Jews. Of course, the Jews had other problems associated with the general Christian backlash against the evils of usury. And therefore, they were not so useful for revenue purposes in 1290 as they had been at earlier decades. However, that alone would not have caused their expulsion if they had been otherwise peaceable residents. Lease also shows from documented historical sources that Jewish ritual murder of Christian children was one of the chief factors in the decision of Ferdinand and Isabella to expel the Jews from Spain in 1492. And, and there were many other expulsions across Europe often having to do with the discovery of Jewish ritual murder, and, and Lease discusses some of those also. This is from Arnold Lease's book. On July, and, and this book can be found at christagenia.org. You only have to search for Lease, L-E-E-S-E. I have two copies. I have one copy, which is the text, and the other copy are actual facsimiles from a 1938 publication, complete. On July 15, 1936, Mr. Oliver Locker Lampson, Minister of Parliament, a childhood friend of the Rothschild family, asked in the House of Commons whether the Attorney General proposed 
to institute legal proceedings against the authors or publishers of the fascist. The fascist was a, a paper which Arnold Leith produced. The issue of that paper for July containing allegations against the Jews of the practice of ritual murder. The Attorney General replied that the matter was under consideration. As an ultimate result of this consideration, I, meaning Arnold Lees, was sentenced to six months imprisonment among criminals on September 21st, 1936. The judge in the case being a 31st degree Mason of the Scottish Rite. But it is important to note that the conviction was obtained not on the ritual murder issue alone, which was not relied upon by the prosecution for the purpose of silencing me, but on the whole contents of the July fascist, the paper, and particularly on words used by me with reference to the disposal of the Jews. Under the law of libel, the truth of my statements with reference to ritual murder could not be used as an argument in my defense. That now we see that same problem today with all of the um, all of those good and brave German and, and European people who stand up against the Jewish lie of the Holocaust and and the fact that they can prove what when these people are brought to trial for speaking out against the Jewish lie of the Holocaust, the fact that they can prove that they have actual evidence to prove their point, that the Holocaust never really happened, there were never really gas chambers, that, that's never admitted to their defense, right? Because the truth doesn't really matter. And, and, and it was that way today with the Holocaust? Well, well it was that way in, in 1936 with Arnold Weiss and, and his trial, accusing the Jews of... Ritual murder, which is something which is very well documented in English court records from the 12th, 13th centuries, and on the least proves that and makes his citations, and, and even that wasn't good enough for his defense. And he uses that as part of his defense. And he also says that his position is the same position that King Edward I had in his defense, which it was. And, um, well, in... in in a world controlled by Jews through masonry, well, well that's the way it is. And, and the banking system, that, that's the way it is. Truth fails, as the Bible tells us it would. Truth doesn't matter. Under the law of libel, I'm back to lease now, right? The truth of my statements with reference to ritual murder could not be used as an argument against my def In my defense, it was deemed sufficient under the law that statement that the statements had been written and that they rendered his majesty subject of the Jewish faith liable to sufficient suspicion, I'm sorry, suspicion, affront, and boycott, and so amounted to a public mischief. Lease continues, I came to court fully, very fully prepared. If the truth of my statements was challenged to justify the statements I had made in the fascist, and was even ready to demand that Rex, as he calls the prosecutor, should produce from the public records office certain close and patent roles of the state, wherein, and these are official state documents from the 13th century, right, wherein Jewish ritual murder is recorded as an established fact in this country, meaning England. But I was forbidden by the judge 
to use this line of defense. It did not matter who else had charged the Jews with ritual murder or how often or what historic facts proved it or how many convictions there had been under proper juridical authority. Thus, when I asked Inspector Kitchener, the only witness who appeared against me, when you brought this case, were you under the impression that ritual murder was a thing of the past? And he replied, yes. The judge intervened with the remark, the truth of a libel is no defense, I must point out again. Now, now that's pretty incredible because libel, of course, is a, a crime where you're lying about somebody. So if it's true, then it's not libel. The truth of a libel is no defense. That's incredible. Again, the attorney general, who was acting as prosecuting counsel, interrupted another question of mine to the same witness by the remark. In my submission, it is correctly laid down that the defendant is in no case allowed to prove the truth of a seditious libel as a justification for having published it. Well, well that, that's Orwellian. If George Orwell ever got an idea for, for um, 1984 from, from anywhere, he, he must have been an attendee at this case. Because the truth of a seditious libel isn't a seditious libel if it's true. There's no case. That, that's funny as hell. It's, it's funny. If you don't laugh, you just want to cry because of the injustice in this world today. And, and this is, uh, um, it's not new to, to, the, to the trials of the Holocaust revisionists because we see it here in England as pertains to Jews in 1936. Lise goes on to say that um, the judge then said, that is the law as I understand it. He made it clear to me that to proceed further in such a line of, of defense would be contempt of court. The same thing happens to, to our modern... Um, no, look, look at Sylvia Stoltz. She, she was in the same boat, right? She, she was pre prevented. She, she was sentenced to prison because she wanted to defend her client, which is what she's supposed to do. And, and here we have the same thing. As the truth of the libel was irrelevant, according to the judge, to the issue of the trial. Such may be the law, but it is not justice. I, I, don't, I, I find it hard to believe that would be the law. The last thing the Judeo-Masonic hidden hand wanted was the truth about ritual murder. Since I came out of prison on, 6th, on the 6th of February, 1937, I have until recently been too busy to write on the subject of ritual murder. But finding that there are, even among anti-Jewish workers, people who, never having investigated the matter for themselves, still imagine that rich, Jewish ritual murder not only has not existed and does not exist, but it is a fiction invented by crazy anti-Jewish fanatics, and as such exploited by me, meaning on a lease, in my campaign against the Jews. It becomes necessary for me to take steps to defend my own reputation as a man of good faith by compiling and publishing this book. It's really funny. If, if you look on Wikipedia, and, and I did a program with um, Sword Brethren here last Saturday on, on Wikipedia bias, right? 
If you look on Wikipedia, Wikipedia brags that they have a neutral point of view in all their articles, and that's their boast. Well, if you look at Blood Libel, the article for Blood Libel on Wikipedia, it begins like this. Blood Libel is a false accusation or claim that religious minorities, usually Jews, murder children to use their blood in certain aspects of their ritual, religious rituals and holidays. That's not a neutral point of view. As soon as they mention blood libel, they say it's a false accusation or claim. So, so much for Wikipedia, and, and that's just one more example of Wikipedia bias, right? Back to Arnold Lease. What the court procedure prevented me from doing in my own defense I do now in these pages, and I have no anxiety concerning the conclusions at which my readers will arrive on the matter. The subject of ritual murder has always been one that the Jewish money power, which controls this country as well as most others, has taken all possible steps to suppress. The reason is that ritual murder was the dynamite which finally blew the Jew out of England in 1290 and out of Spain in 1492, and out of Germany in our time, he's referring to Adolf Hitler, the Jews know it, and I know it too. But there is no British law, and no 11th commandment, which makes ritual murder by Jews a forbidden topic in this country. At least is what was pretty brave. He, he went to jail for six months for speaking out against Jewish ritual murder, and, and the year after he got out of jail for speaking out against Jewish ritual murder, he published a book about Jewish ritual murder. I mean, that, that's great. Sir Richard Burton's book about it was published shortly after his death near the end of the last century. In, in other words, Sir Richard Burton, had, Burton I, I don't know the man, but he must have written a pretty voluminous book on Jewish ritual murder, right? or at least a significant one. Strack's book, Defending the Jews Against the Accusation, was translated and published in England in 1909, whilst the Jew, C. Roth, published his Ritual Murder Libel in the Jew in 1935. In France, as in Germany, there is free speech on the subject. I challenge and defy the Judeo-Masonic power which rules this country by publishing the present work in 1938, not only in my own defense, but in the public interest to break the attack on free speech that is rapidly developing wherever any criticism of the past or present conduct of Jews is concerned. This is 1937 that he's writing this. And this is certainly not a, a, a new, um, <laughs> a, a, a so, something new that all of a sudden it's unfair to criticize Jews or that it's illegal or unlawful or, or forbidden to criticize Jews. It's been around and for, for 100 years at least. Ever since the Jews got control of our economies, it's, it's been f virtually forbidden in public to criticize Jews. It's absolutely incredible that we have that attitude. And, and there'll be more on that later. An attack which relies for its success upon the ridiculous charge that a breach of the peace is likely if the truth about them is spoken. 
I do so in order that the Jew shall not escape simply through the power of money and masonry from bearing the burden of a charge which, in my opinion, has been proved against some of them through the ages. My object is, and always has been, in spite of what my Masonic judge had to say about it, to alter a matter of state established, namely the status of Jews in this country on an equality with Britons, a condition which is imperiling our civilization. Well, well, today, 70 years later, we certainly see the fruits of that. And to enlighten the public on their true nature as beings possessing instincts utterly incompatible with our own, as Paul of Tarsus also states, so that they may be removed legally and peacefully to a national home in which they will be, be required to live together. Now, now, that would be torture for Jews, right? In this aim, I keep troth with the greatest of English kings, Edward I, who expelled the Jews from the shores in 1290. The maintenance of free speech demands that Jewish ritual murder shall be a subject for open discussion, like Suti and Sugi, Thuggy, Thuggy, I'm not sure what Sati is, S-U-T-T-E-E, but Thuggy, what was the, um, in, in India, the, the, the class of criminals called the thugs, it was really like a street gang that they ritually murdered travelers in the road and, and um, robbed all their possessions and hid their bodies. And, and princes in India actually being afraid of the thugs, that they actually protected them, just like Western governments today protect the Jewish criminals, for the most part. Like Suti and Thuggy and the sacrifices of Aztec Mexico, all of which were ritual murders which, like the Jewish variety, would be practiced today if the Aryan had not interfered to prevent them. If the world thinks that I have not in this book proved my case, let it laugh. I can bear it. But can the Jews? The Jewish Chronicle September 25, 1936, complained after my trial was over that there had been no opportunity for the Jews to refute the charge of ritual murder. Well, they have one now. That's only from the, um, the introduction to, to Lisa's book. Now, now, I must say that it is sad, it, it's unfortunate that Lisa had also confused the Jews with the people of the Bible. And he starts his book off with a description of the sacrifice of Isaac by Abraham. However, Lise misses the entire point of that story, which is that Isaac, by ancient tradition, was dedicated to the purposes of God on that altar. And that's something that unless you understand the practices of the ancient world, you'll totally miss why the sacrifice of Isaac, which was never really planned to happen, what was demanded by God. Because as soon as Abraham dedicated Isaac on an altar to God, Isaac belonged to God. And Isaac was not slain. And the Bible then goes on for many chapters to very often and absolutely condemn child sacrifice, which was a Canaanite ritual. And it can be proven through history, that the modern Jews actually descended from the ancient Canaanites and not from the people of Judah. They all, a, a percentage of them probably have a percentage of blood 
of the people of Judah because Judea had become a mixed-race kingdom. But saying that, that the... Um, saying that the ancient Israelites are akin to the modern Jews, it is like saying that the ancient Europeans must have been black because there's a couple of blacks in Europe. It, it just doesn't wash historically, right? Lease justly wanting to indict the Jews unjustly takes even the biblical condemnations of child sacrifice out of context. It is the Canaanite Jews who are still, to this day, sacrificing our children. And it's, it's sad that least missed that, but we can um, look back and see that mistake today and, and still understand and value the, his courage and the rest of his work. Here are some of the reports of children found dead in medieval England, which Lise recounts. In 1160, that now in 1160, the Jews had barely been, that they hadn't even been in, in, in England for 100 years, right? That the, um, the, the Normans took the throne of England in, in 1066, at the battle, after the Battle of Hastings. In 1160 in Gloucester, the body of a child named Harold was found in the river with the, unusual, with the usual wounds of crucifixion. Usual wounds of crucifixion because many of these children were found with those wounds. Sometimes wrongly dated in 1168, it was recorded in the Monumenta Germania Historica, Polychronicon by R. Higgin, and Chronicles by R. Grafton. I'm, I'm not, you know, because I'm not entirely familiar with the works, it, it's some of the citations are a little difficult to understand, but all of these cases are well cited. Least did his homework. 1181, Bury St. Edmunds, a, a place in southern England, a child called Robert was sacrificed at Passover. The child was buried in the church, and its presence there was supposed to cause miracles. That's from the Chronicle of Gervais of Canterbury. 1192, in Winchester, a boy was crucified, mentioned in the Jewish Encyclopedia as being a false charge. 1232, in Winchester, a boy was crucified, details lacking. Mentioned in Hyamson's History of the Jews in England, and also in the Annals of Winchester. And conclusively, in the close role under Henry III, and, and he gives an exact citation of that. It's one of the legal documents of England, right? 1235 in Norwich, in this case, the Jews stole a child and hid him with a view to crucifying him. Hayden's Dictionary of Dates of 1847 mentions this case, and it says that the Jews circumcise and attempt to crucify a child at Norwich. The offenders are condemned in a fine of 20,000 marks. Uh, I guess they were released when they paid it, right? 1244 in London, a child's body found unburied in the cemetery of St. Benedict with ritual cuts. He was buried with great pomp in St. Paul's. 1255 in Lincoln, the, the, um, the subject of Chaucer's Priors' tale, a boy called Hugh was kidnapped by the Jews and crucified and tortured in hatred of Jesus Christ. The boy's mother found the body in a well on the premises of a Jew called Joppin, or Coppinus. This Jew, I guess that's his Latin name, right? This Jew, promised by the judge, his wife, if he confessed, did so. And 91 Jews were arrested. Eventually, 18 were hanged for the crime. 
King Henry III himself personally ordered the judicial investigation of the case five weeks after the discovery of the body and refused to allow mercy to be shown by the Jew coppinist who was executed. These are only examples, and there were other reports of such crimes all over Europe as well. The Jews were admitted to the Holy Roman Empire in the days of Charlemagne. And it did not take long for these reports to begin to arise. The Jews were admitted to England with the Norman invasion. And neither did it take long after that for the same reports to arise. It is incredible to think that all Europe, and these reports are from Poland, France, Germany, that all Europe, at a time when there was no mass media, would nevertheless arise in the same mass hysteria against the Jew, if indeed the Jew were innocent. And the Jew has gotten much wiser over the centuries. In 1944, Dr. Helmut Schramm wrote, I'm probably butchering his name, right? Wrote a book, which has been translated into English by one R. Belser, and its title in English is, I'm not going to try to repeat the German title, it's in the article, is Ritual Murder in Kiev. This book details the events surrounding the death of the young Andrei, I'm, I'm going to butcher this name too, I'm sorry, Andrei Yustchinsky in 1911, and also summarizes the known history of Jewish ritual murder of non-Jewish, and mostly Christian, of course, children in Europe and elsewhere. And, and Schramm went into many of the cases, which Lise also discussed, and, and he evidently researched them quite independently. The book is full of historical references and citations, just like the Lise book. And it also tells how the Jews were often successful at covering up their crimes with bribes, with extortion, and often with more barbaric methods, dead witnesses and, and bodies showing up in, in other places, things which the Lease book also relates in certain instances. Now, now I'm going to go back to the Lease book. Here are some examples from France of, of, um, of reports of Jewish ritual murder. And, and there are examples from the rest of Europe, but I'll, I'll leave it with France. In 1171, right around the same time that, that it starts up in England, right? In Blois, France, Blois, I guess, B-L-O-I-S. I can't pronounce that French stuff. I'm sorry. I, I, I can't pronounce any. I could hardly pronounce English. In 1171, in Blois, France, at Passover, a Christian child was crucified. His body drained of blood and thrown into the river. A number of Jews were executed for the crime. And the authority for that is the Monumenta Germanica Historia, volume 6, page 520. 1179 in Pontoise, P-O-N-T-O-I-S-E. The authorities for this case are the Bollandists, and, and there's some citations there. A boy named Richard was tortured, crucified, and bled white. Philip Augustus's chaplains and historians attested this case. The body of the boy was taken to the Church of the Holy Innocents in Paris, and he was canonized as St. Richard. And that is, um, 
Yeah, you know, by the Catholic Church, Hugh of Lincoln, Simon of Trent, William of Norwich, and and if I'm not mistaken, probably about two dozen other children at this period in Europe were canonized as saints because they died in Jewish ritual murders and, and their bodies were discovered. Under the date 1080, Hayden's Dictionary of Dates, 1847, page 282 says, Thinking to invoke the divine mercy at a solemnization of the Passover, the Jews sacrificed a youth, youth, the son of a rich tradesman in Paris, for which all the criminals are executed and all Jews banished from France. Eleven ninety two. I'm not going to try to pronounce this name either. B r a i s n e is the name of the town. Philip Augustus attended to this case personally and had the criminals burnt. It was a case of the crucifixion of a Christian sold to the Jews by Agnes, the Countess of Drew, who considered him guilty of homicide and theft. In twelve thirty five, in Fulda, Hest Nassau. That this is actually in, in modern Germany, right? Five children were murdered. Jews confessed under torture but said the blood was wanted for healing purposes. Frederick too exonerated the Jews from suspicion. But the Crusaders had already dealt with a number of, by putting them to death. Frederick too called together a number of converted Jews who denied the existence of Jewish ritual murder. But Frederick's bias is evident in his own words when, in publishing his decision, he gives his objects in calling these people together. Altogether, our conscience regarded the innocence of the aforesaid Jews adequately adequately proved on the ground of several writings. Had Frederick too lived today, he would have relied little upon religious literature in deciding whether Jewish ritual murder exists or not. Seeing this history, we must ask ourselves some serious questions. Why are so many children each year missing today? And why is so little done about it? And why is there not a greater outcry about it in the media? Over 95% of which happens to be Jewish-controlled. According to official FBI statistics, In 2010, there were 692,944 missing persons reported in the United States to law enforcement authorities, of which just over 50% were classified as white. Representative of the population, 51% were females. Not representative of the population, over 74% were children. Of the children, 61,225 were listed as endangered, and 19,853 were listed as involuntary. But who knows how accurate those statistics are if they have not found all of the children. As of December 31st, 2010, 85,820 of the cases were still listed as active of which nearly 45% were children under 18, and nearly 12% were between the ages of 18 and 20. That's 57%. 
So the prior year, as of December 31st, 2009, at the end of the year, there were 96,000 active missing persons records for that year. That doesn't include prior years. Those statistics do not include missing persons reported in 2008. Juveniles under the age of 18 in 2009 accounted for over 46% of the records and 13% were between 18 and 20. That year of 719,558 total missing persons reports, 52% were female and six, nearly 61% were white. Of the total, 542,632 were juvenile, 82,564 endangered, and 20,191 listed as involuntary. One thing which is not listed in the public statistics is how many of the 180,000 or so cases open at the end of each year for these two years are still open currently. And how many of those, uh, I'm sorry, for these two years, it was 180,000 total cases. We don't know how many are still open currently. It's not reported. And how many of those thousands of children are still missing is not reported. It's forgotten. Even worse, the statistics provided by the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Visit that site. It's ridiculous. The statistics provided that their job is to track missing and exploited children. The statistics they provide were last compiled in 2002 based on estimated data from the 1990s. And that's the most current data they have. We discuss all of this because if there is any particular racial group which has a recorded history of abusing another group's children, it's the Jews. And since the Jews have, since the 1920s, once again become a dominant group within Christian society, if there are thousands of children missing each year, then the first questions which should be asked are inevitable. However, very few people, if indeed anyone at all, seems to be asking those questions. And one thing which is incredibly obvious is the hypocrisy which permeates society because of its own self-imposed blindness. Let's look at Nambla, for instance. In America today, even a simple discussion of the desire to commit certain crimes, like bank robbery or racketeering, or, or, or bank robbery or drug dealing, for instance, and, and I've seen many cases of this personally, the desire to commit certain crimes and expressing that desire can land one in prison under a charge of conspiracy or racketeering long before any such crime may have actually been committed. At the end of 2010, approximately 25,000 young men under the age of 21 reported missing that year were still listed as missing, men who disappeared during the course of the year. 
And NAMBLA, the North American Man-Boy Love Association, a group which openly advocates sexual relations between adult men and male children, is allowed to function openly, and it actively recruits members, and it actively recruits support from society at large. Yet the only attention that this group seems to get is some off-color jokes on late-night television. To say that Jews are overrepresented among NAMBLA members and among writers for NAMBLA and those whom it otherwise celebrates is an understatement. And the group's political tendencies, as understood from the articles on its own website, certainly lean heavily towards Marxist, communist, leftist ideologies. Here's one example of a NAMBLA member at work, Rabbi Alan J. Horowitz, formerly of Hagerstown, Maryland, Schenectady, New York, California, Iowa, and believed now to be, believed now to be in Israel, was convicted and sentenced to 10 to 20 years in prison for sodomizing a nine-year-old psychiatric patient. Allegedly, he has assaulted a string of children from California to New York and even in Israel over the past 20 years. And, and this article was written 15 years ago, or, or at least 10. Alan J. Horowitz is an Orthodox rabbi, an MD, a PhD, magna cum laude, graduate of Duke University, where, where black hookers claim to get raped and, and, and it all turns out to be a fraud. And, and he was a writer. He was a writer for NAMBLA. This is all well known. It's all over the Internet. Horowitz was charged with sexually abusing two boys under the age of 11, a boy less than 14 years old and a girl under the age of 17. Evidently, he's only part-time NAMBLA. He assaults girls, too. On July 27, 1992, Horowitz pled guilty to sodomizing a nine-year-old psychiatric patient as part of a plea agreement. The charge was but one of 41 pending sex-related charges involving multiple children that had been against him. Horowitz was released on conditional parole after 12 years, November 1st, not even 12 years, November 1st, 2004, from Oneida Prison in New York. As of 2006, he was missing in violation of his parole. He is generally believed to be in Israel. He's probably molesting young boys as we speak. In 1989, Jewish congressman and admitted sexual deviant Barney Frank was embroiled in a scandal when it was discovered that one of his sexually deviant paramours was running a male prostitution operation out of the congressman's home in Massachusetts. Frank also had this man on his congressional payroll as an aide and had lied about the man's being on probation in order to hire him. Among other inappropriate activities, yet Frank was somehow able to keep both his job and his home, even in an age where law enforcement officials are seizing entire apartment buildings so that they could punish the landlords for not eradicating drug dealing in their apartments. Accounts of the scandal 
had been highly sanitized by the sympathetic Jewish-controlled media. Frank's later behavior, where he abused his office once again to run cover for another of his deviant lovers after helping to get the man a position as an economist for Fannie Mae, cost the nation much more dearly in economic terms. But Frank is not merely an anomaly. Rather, it is slowly becoming apparent that he is representative of those who dominate Western politics in general. NAMBLA is a conspiracy. NAMBLA is a conspiracy to corrupt young boys. NAMBLA, any prosecutor in this country with any balls, I don't think there's one Christian prosecutor in existence because they should indict all of those perverted bastards for racketeering. NAMBLA is guilty of racketeering and conspiracy against our children, and they get away with it. It's incredible. But if you talked about maybe doing a drug deal, you'd probably get 10 years in prison if the FBI ever got you on tape. No lie. Conspiracy to, to um, distribute narcotics, and, and you'd go away for a long time. NAMBLA can publicly function and conspire to molest little boys, and, and nobody seems to care. They should all be rounded up and... and, and and, and, well, I'd tell you what I would do with them, that they should all be castrated from the neck down. That's the only way to cure them. But they should all be rounded up and, and charged with racketeering. There should be a RICO charge against every NAMBLA member in the nation. But they're all Jews, and they're all, they're, they're all Bolsheviks, so there's no way they're going to be um, indicted. That, that's the state uh, of um, society and morality in America today. It's worse. Susan Ford. You know, when I first saw this stuff on, on the Internet, it, it took me a long time thinking about this stuff to, to um, come to realize that there was something to it. But because it's so wild and, and it's so over the top, but when you really think about it, there has to be something to it because these books are being sold on Amazon.com. And if these books were slanderous, then they wouldn't be being sold. There would be lawsuits. And there's only not lawsuits for one reason. And the media is ignoring these books for one reason. They've got, there has to be some truth to them. And I'm talking about Kathy O'Brien. And Susan Ford. Susan Ford's Thanks for the Memories, originally written under the pseudonym of Bryce Taylor, is about government agencies abusing children in mind control experiments, and then the use of those children as sex toys for the rich and famous. And she names names. She names Henry Kissinger, the Bush family, the Reagans, the Clintons, and even celebrities such as Bob Hope, which is why she titled the book Thanks for the Memories, right? Among others, she names governors and she names foreign leaders. Ford asserts that she and also her own children were 
and still are, her children still are anyway, victims of a criminal government elite. Her book is available at Amazon.com, where it's listed as a biography. Now, while I can't agree with Taylor, with Ford's, I mean, she wrote under the pseudonym Bryce Taylor, I can't agree with Ford's comparisons to the Nazis, where, where she is surely merely repeating much of the standard Jewish propaganda concerning National Socialist Germany. It's amazing how many people can't, even when they wake up to something being severely wrong in the world, they just can't totally cleanse their minds of Jewish propaganda. Yet you've got to put a hose in your brain and turn the water all the way up and, and get it all out of there because um, that, that's what it takes. But, but she merely repeats the Jewish propaganda concerning National Socialist Germany, well, which is unfortunate. But her book provides a list of names from among the American oligarchy that is astounding. Yet the Jewish-controlled mainstream media that seeds news to nearly all American households seems to pretend that it isn't even there. The allegations in the book are so shocking that if they were false, they should have had their day in court. And they should have been shut down from public distribution as slander, as libel, many years ago. If they are not false, then no matter how credible they are, the implications are far beyond belief. Ford describes how satanic ritual was used to brainwash her so that she was completely submissive to her governmental handlers. Her awakening process was triggered by an auto accident and was described as a very painful and terrifying experience. Much like the Ford story is that of Kathy O'Brien. O'Brien even talks about participating in the same type of hunter-prey game that Susan Ford claimed she was forced to play with none other than George Bush. She'd be let out into the woods, and George Bush would go on a hunt and track her down and debouch her when he found her. Her book is called Transformation of America, T-R-A-N-C-E colon Formation of America. And it, it is also available in retail outlets publicly, such as Amazon.com and Barnes & Noble. There seems to be a complete disconnect between what is actually going on in the world and the reality perceived by the general public. And that disconnect is only possible because almost all of the population is beholden to the Jewish-controlled media and their Jewish-controlled church propaganda, which works in concert with the media, and there's no doubt about that. Yeah, you know, that's something I realized, um, that, that's something that I realized when the whole, well, when I first heard the term politically correct. When I first heard the term cor politically correct, I noticed that I was hearing it in, in my Catholic schools and, and, and in the media and from the churches all at the same time. That's not a mistake. That, that's, that can't be an accident. That's not a coincidence. That's coming down from above from somebody who is controlling all of those institutions. And when there's a bandwagon that they have to jump on, they all jump on it at the same time. It, it, if you actually observe those things, you'll find it's absolutely incredible.
It's not a mistake. They don't all read the New York Times and go off on their marching orders, but they all seem to take up the same agendas at the same time in concert and walk in lockstep. One description of the Kathy O'Brien book advertises that the book names names at the very top. The so-called leader of America, at this time was George Bush, and elsewhere, and, and other leaders, including presidents, senators, the military, churchmen, and even well-known entertainers, and that the book will have horrifying, will horrify, I'm sorry, law-abiding citizens who think they live in a democratic society that values freedom, truth, and justice. Of course, it's just the opposite. Kathy reveals a smattering of what really goes on in the halls of power. Perverse scenarios of pedophilia, prostitution, pornography, bestiality, occult rituals, narcotics trafficking, gun running, sordid state secrets, and disturbing New World Order agendas designed to enslave us all. As this was written, the O'Brien book ranked 24,598 in sales among books at Amazon. Now, now that's not bad, and I know it's not bad, but because the, um, my, my books aren't even in the top million, right? They're, they're, they're not in the top two million, I don't think. It, it's, and, and these books, to, to rank 24,000 out of all the books on Amazon.com, to rank 200,000 is, is pretty damn good. Uh, okay, so people are reading these books. The Ford book ranks 132,541 when I checked it the other day. The rankings aren't very high compared to the current crop of pulp novels, but nonetheless, they are significant. Yet, since many of the people named in their pages have no want of resources, Henry Kissinger, the Bush family, these people got plenty of money for lawyers, right? Since they have no want of resources, why are these books sold if they are indeed libelous? They would indeed be libelous unless, of course, the accusations are true. When the accusations of Ford and O'Brien were made public, they should have been in the mainstream media every night, just like this Trayvon lie that the media is propagating. They should have been in the mainstream media every night until something was done about them. Only if the mainstream media was legitimate, rather than merely being a tool for the Jewish-controlled oligarchy. You know, I remember the Watergate scandal when that broke. And the media smelled blood, and they wanted to get rid of Richard Nixon. And it was pretty obvious. And they... Relentless. It, it was incredible. Every single day, something about Watergate, something about Watergate, the White House plumbers, this guy, that guy, every day in the media. But it's all in support of an agenda. The media only pushes whatever is currently on the agenda. Another book describing the sexual abuse of children Abuse perpetrated by people in high positions and accompanied by the use of drugs and satanic ritual, which has long been available, is the Franklin cover-up. 
Child Abuse, Satanism, and Murder in Nebraska. The book was written by John DeCamp, a lawyer and a former member of the Nebraska legislature. The book has a sales rank at Amazon.com of 83,900. I mentioned the rankings again in order to show that these books are indeed being read. However, the mainstream public media is virtually silent in regards to the implications of their assertions. There has to be a good reason for that. The failure of Omaha, Nebraska's Franklin Community Federal Credit Union looked like, as DeCamp says in his book, looked like a financial swindle, but soon exploded into a hideous tale of drugs, Iran-Contra money laundering, a nationwide child abuse ring, and ritual murder. Evidently, $40 million was missing from the credit union. Yet that may have been one of the minor crimes committed by those behind it. The extent of the cover-up has been such that some of the young people who testified in dead-end investigations in Omaha, Nebraska, of their abuse as children, ended up in prison for doing so. Alicia Owens and Paul Bonacci. Alicia Owens was sent to prison because she testified at a grand jury because of her, over her own abuse and she was told that she was committing perjury, and she was sent away. Paul Bonacci was apparently unjustly set up with a child abuse case of his own, which was hardly abuse at all. He got thrown the book at. He, he got five years when it was found that he touched a young boy's pants. And he had been abused himself, and, and I believe that that's one facet of abused children, that they grow up themselves to be deviants. And um, Paul Bonacci probably, he certainly didn't deserve five years for touching a boy's pants. They wanted to get rid of him. They set him up, and, and they wanted to throw the book at him. And DeCamp even, um, well, well, it might be speculative, but DeCamp even suggests that Bonacci was still under the mind control techniques used by the people that abused him in the first place when he did that. It is said that 19 months, and, and DeCamp records and, and documents this, and DeCamp is no, he's no clown. This man was a, is a lawyer, and he was a longtime member of the Nebraska legislature that was investigating the Franklin cover-up. It is said that 19 months after the Nebraska legislature began an independent investigation of the credit union, that the legislative committee's chief investigator died. He died suddenly and violently, like more than, half, like more than a dozen other people linked to the Franklin case. DeCamp then writes in the conclusion of his introduction, and I quote, The Franklin case, which has dominated political life in Nebraska for three years, has chilling implications for the whole United States. The unfinished business of the Franklin investigation is a matter not only of justice for children in one state, but of the lives of untold numbers of children everywhere. Evidence developed from, from Franklin and King's activities 
leads into drug trafficking, money laundering, child pornography, prostitution, and the kidnapping and sale of children in different parts of the United States and abroad. The shocking treatment of Alicia Owen, and these are DeCamp's words, right? The shocking treatment of Alicia Owen and Paul Bonacci by the courts in Nebraska is one giveaway of what a high stake has been wagered on suppressing the Franklin scandal. Members of the state Senate and investigators who sought to discover the truth of the matter found that earlier on, found that out earlier on in a personal and violent manner. All the investigators working for the Nebraska State Legislature were killed. I have on, on the Saxon Messenger site accompanying this, um, this editorial, I have a lot of resources. I have videos from, um, from Susan Ford and from Kathy O'Brien. And I, I have a headline I'm looking at right now, the Washington Times. This is a 1989 headline. It's, it's connected to the Franklin case, it says. And this is a headline in the Washington Times. Homosexual prostitution inquiry ensnares VIPs with Reagan and Bush. Call boys took midnight tour of the White House. And that's a pretty shocking headline by itself. Well, what became of it? Nothing. Nothing at all. It's incredible. I have PDF copies on the Saxon Messenger site accompanying this article of the DeCamp, Ford, and O'Brien books. DeCamp has also mentioned many other cases of child abuse in his book, including those scandals of the Roman Catholics. They're always around, right? The priests. They seem to be the only cases which the Jewish-controlled media enjoys trumpeting. Former FBI agent Ted Gunderson has long been independently investigating the child abduction and abuse phenomena in the United States. And had been, had been I say had been because he, he passed away of apparently natural causes in July 2011. Gunderson had been instrumental in trying to get the Susan Ford story into the public arena. Mysteriously, and, and Gunderson did a lot of work in the field of child abuse and, and with Susan Ford, and very mysteriously, his Wikipedia page mentions nothing of his investigations into child abuse. <laughs> and, and that's just amazing, because Gunderson wrote at length on the topic of missing children and child abuse. His Wikipedia page talks about a lot of things, but I couldn't find anything about child abuse. In the introduction to his book on the Franklin scandal, DeCamp speaks of Gunderson thusly. Evidence, and I quote, evidence from Gunderson's investigations has convinced him that tens of thousands of children or young people, as I quoted the statistics, disappear from their homes each year, and that many are ritually sacrificed. A decade ago, one estimate printed in Reader's Digest in 1982 was that approximately 100,000 children are unaccounted for each year. And, and that's even higher than the FBI statistics, which I read for 2009 and 2010. Not much higher, but it's higher. Back to DeCamp. That number sounds too high, 
But nobody knows what the true figure is because the FBI does not keep count. They never tell us down the road how many of those cases are ever recovered, as I pointed out. Gunderson observes, now this is DeCamp quoting Gunderson, the FBI has an accurate count of the number of automobiles stolen each year. It knows the number of homicides, rapes, and robberies. But the FBI has no idea of the number of children who disappear every year. Now, I'm not sure if if that has changed since the statistics which I read in 2009 and 2010 do happen to give the number of missing children every year, but they don't keep track of it after that year. They no longer... They no longer give us statistics about those cases. They only give us statistics about the case up to December 31st, and then the next day they start over. That's what I got from the FBI website. Gunderson says, and he works for the FBI, and he should know, but the FBI has no idea of the number of children who disappear every year. They simply do not ask for the statistics. Now, when I... um, when I went to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children website and I researched the statistics that they published, as I said, I found statistics. I found a study in 2002 that was based on statistics that were only estimates from a sampling of law enforcement agencies, which was taken in the late 1990s. And that's all I found at the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. And that's disgraceful. It's absolutely disgraceful. There's no doubt in my mind, especially since they have all kinds of funding and get all kinds of donations. It's disgraceful. that They brag about how many cases they've handled, but they don't tell us anything about how many children are actually missing. And that might be... Um, more indicative of the work that Gunderson faced a little earlier on, and, and I believe that it probably is. His, his um, statements are certainly not inaccurate. Every month, every major police department in the United States files its uniform crime statistics of the FBI. It would be simple for the Bureau to add one more column to the statistics and get a breakdown of every reported case of missing children, not to even mention children who are kidnapped for ritualistic purposes and, in some cases, murdered. I, and this is Gunderson speaking, I am convinced that the FBI does not ask for these statistics because they do not want to see them. They would be confronted with an instant public outcry for action because the figures would show a major social problem. That problem would demand action. Now, now let me say that I didn't quantify it, and I didn't quantify it. It's really not that easy to quantify. It's um, the the general tenor that I got from some of the websites that I went to that that researching this, and and I didn't believe them. I thought they were propaganda. Maybe I should go back. But but um, it and and Wikipedia was only one of them. What was that? Their excuse for not caring about the missing children after the end of the year was that most of those children were only trouble troubled kids and runaways. And and let me say that they're exactly the kind of kids that would be ideal 
for predators to feed on. The Franklin case involved some prominent people, many of them among Nebraska's business elite. It included billionaire Warren Buffett, who was tied in with Larry King. All these men were acquainted with all of these Nebraska business big shots tied up with the Franklin case, were acquainted with a man named Larry King. King is a 300-pound Negro Republican who apparently enjoyed all the benefits of being such a novelty among truly liberal Nebraska conservatives. There is much evidence presented by DeCamp and others that King, one-time manager of the Franklin Credit Union, also ran a child sex and pornography ring. King also had ties to Omaha's famous Boys Town. And eventually, the former police chief of Omaha, the publisher of the state's largest daily newspaper, and several other political associates of King all found themselves being accused of patronizing King's child prostitution ring. King was taking boys from Boys Town, and he was flying them around the country where they were used for the enjoyment of men in high places. And then they were returned, and their silence was bought with money, privileges, and threats. Also involved with King were former President George Bush and former Nebraska Governor and U.S. Senator Bob Kerry, among other political big shots. King ended up doing a 15-year federal prison sentence for defrauding the credit union the missing $40 million. But the child abuse scandals have been swept under the rug and are now mostly dismissed as conspiracy theory. While major media attention slowed to a trickle after the death of Joe Paterno, the Penn State pedophilia scandal goes far beyond the football team's locker rooms. Nick Bryan. Nick Bryan also wrote a book about the cover-up in Nebraska, and, and, and it's a book a lot like DeCamp's book. It's called The Franklin Scandal, and that too is available at Amazon.com, where it's ranked 154,140 in sales, and it also has its own website. Well, Nick Bryan has gotten interviews with several minor media outlets, a radio station here or there locally, where he has discussed the similarities between the Franklin case and the Penn State child abuse case. And he admittedly and justifiably has been trying to force the issue into the mainstream media. But he's only had very minimal success to date. Here's a man who is actively trying to get the, 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 um, the Franklin case opened back up and, and the sexual abuse charges looked at. And, and, and the Penn State case and, and, and wider investigations of that, but he's not having a whole lot of success in, in, in the media. By now, many people have heard of Jerry Sandusky, the ex-football coach at Penn State University, who presently stands indicted with 40 counts of child abuse. This is the scandal, because it was reported years too late, that led to the ultimate disgrace of his former boss, Joe Paterno, and another assistant coach who witnessed some of Sandusky's behavior. However, few people have heard of the much wider accusations surrounding his crimes. 
There's a website that I spent a lot of time on over the past few days, and and sometimes I think the the, the guy, you know, he sticks his neck out there, but but um, he's also a damnant about getting all of this exposed and investigated. The website is called Yardbird.com. And, and and the owner of the website, I'm not going to mention his name, or, or the, the he's the major writer on the website anyway. He's actually been in court in Pennsylvania, and he's been ordered by judges that he can't write about judges. And and when the um, but when his protest was that he had freedom of the press, the judge told him that only big media companies have freedom of the press, basically. And and it's absolutely it, it's. Uh, it, it's another case. It, it's just like the Arnold Lease case. It, it's another case of judges making up the law to satisfy the the, um, the powers that be as 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 they operate. That's what they do. It, it's incredible. In my article, I didn't get into the um, the, the gentleman at Yardbird.com. I didn't get into his his name or his legal wranglings for various reasons. How, however, it it seems to be. Um, a site that that re- is well, well, it's a good resource to begin to understand this Penn State scandal and the much wider problems behind it. But but it seems that even though I think he sticks his neck out a little, he he, um, he, he for the most part tries to be accurate. Yardbird.com reports news and events throughout Pennsylvania and is reported of Pennsylvania Governor Tom Corbett while he was the state's attorney general that Corbett's office served as an obstacle to preventing an investigation of a VIP, as it's called, child sex ring. The ring is said to have included Jerry Sandusky, the operator at Penn State University. Also involved was a man named Russell Wants Jr. Wants, who has a previous conviction as a sex offender, as a pedophile sex offender, and who owns the Shad Detective Agency of York, Pennsylvania, which is said to hold multi-million dollar security contracts with the administration of Pennsylvania Governor Tom Corbett. So imagine that. Corbett won't investigate Sandusky and... and, um, and and Wants is tied up with Sandusky, and Wants has all these multi-million dollar contracts with Corbett's attorney general's office. Yardbird.com writes, and I quote, Wants' company provides security services for the Pennsylvania Turnpike, the Pennsylvania Department of Transportation, and the Pennsylvania Liquor Control Board. He has been implicated in federal court documents in alleged criminal misdeeds, including, court documents say, alleged involvement in a prostitution ring. It's real nice. I mean, I know what it's like to get out of prison and not be able to find a job. But, well, this guy gets um, knocked over for sex offenses, and he has no problem getting millions of dollars in government contracts. That's pretty amazing. Yardbird reports that York County District Attorney Tom Carney has asked the FBI to investigate long-standing allegations that Wants has had ongoing close ties to a prostitution and pedophile ring centered in and around the York County Courthouse. Also named in the allegations are three 
York County, Pennsylvania judges, Richard K. Wren, Stephen Linebaugh, and Maria Musty Cook, all said to have concealed complaints of a courthouse pedophile ring involving wants and an attorney named Larry Heim. Yardbird hosts, and, and I have them on Krista Genia now also, Yardbird hosts a video recording of acquaintances of Himes, uh, of an acquaintance of Himes, a uh, Greg Truchetta, who attests that Heim has boasted of going overseas in order to enjoy underage female prostitutes. Yardbird.com hosts a video interview featuring York City Police Commissioner, uh, I'm sorry, City Police Chief Herbert Grofschick. I'm probably destroying his name also, where he discusses the VIP sex and pedophile ring that's protected by the Pennsylvania Attorney General's office. Grofschick discusses how he was forced to ask federal agents to investigate the sex abuse of young people at the hands of prominent and protected Pennsylvanians. The site also attributes Carney, the York City District Attorney, as having written to the FBI that, and I quote, I note that both former York City Controller James Sneedon and former York City Police Chief Herbert Grofschick both confirmed in recorded interviews that information was forwarded to federal authorities, although it is unclear what became of that investigation. It is apparently still unclear as to what is happening, if indeed anything is happening. And James, uh, I didn't get into too much uh, about this James Sneedon, and and James Sneedon was the... um, he was the York City controller, and he was also an editor of a newspaper in York, and he was fired for investigating these cases. He was fired from his newspaper job for investigating these cases. And, and there are videos on, of him also on Yardbird.com, which are also on Christagenia now. Uh, there are many videos on Christagenia related to this paper that, that are from Kathy O'Brien and from Susan Ford and from, from several other of the people that I've mentioned here tonight. If the case of York, Pennsylvania seems, seems unbelievable, even more surreal is the case of Robert Greene. Robert Greene is in Scotland. Right now he's in jail in Scotland. Twelve years ago, a young girl named Holly Grieg, who has Down syndrome, revealed to her mother that she had been the victim of horrific sexual abuse. The abuse was confirmed medically. Holly alleged that her abusers included her own father, a brother, high-ranking police officers, social workers, and others in high authority in Scotland. Soon after her mother, Anne, reported the abuse of her daughter to police, Anne claims, all she did was report that her daughter told her she was abused, right? Anne claims she was dragged from her home into the street by police and hospital staff. Then she was injected in the buttock in view of her neighbors. Anne woke up in a hospital, sectioned under Mental Health Act, and told that she was paranoid about her husband. 
After following advice on a helpline she was able to phone from the hospital, she played the game, the psychological game, and managed to get discharged. She was later told by an independent doctor that there was nothing wrong with her. Robert Green, at that time 63 years old, was arrested in February 2010 on a breach of the peace charge relating to his campaign as a candidate in a general election in Scotland. Green was running for office, but not for himself. He was running on behalf of Holly Greek, the girl who was allegedly abused in Aberdeen by a pedophile ring over a 10-year period. Green was running on a platform insisting that the case should be investigated. And he was arrested on his way to hand out campaign leaflets for his own campaign. Green's arrest for this alleged crime by Grampian police officers, Grampian being the town he was in, was evidently made on orders from the Crown Office. His Birchdale Road property was also subsequently raided by Grampian police officers who have yet to produce a valid warrant explaining why a search was necessary. Sheriff Principal Edward Bowen, sitting at Stonehaven Sheriff Court, took the unprecedented step of jailing the anti-abuse campaigner and election candidate. So he jailed this candidate for handing out pamphlets because he was running for office. He was running for office because he wanted to see the case investigated. What's so hard about that? Robert Green has now been unjustly sentenced to 12 months, this is going on right now, in a Scottish prison for his crime. His crime that he never, he never committed a crime. There were no official records of Anne, Holly Greig's mother, ever being in a hospital, despite the fact that she received a 13,500-pound compensation award from the Criminal Injuries Board. No investigation of Holly Greig's claims of being sexually abused has ever taken place. But there has been a great effort to cover it up and to persecute those seeking justice. As we see in the treatment of both Anne Grieg and Robert Green, who sits in prison for it as I speak. There's a website which is entitled Free Robert Green. It, it's at um, free, freerobertgreen.co.uk. And, and I would watch that website for further developments in this case. There is also an online petition linked on a website which has been organized in order to demand his freedom, as if that'll do us any good. Apparently, case after case of child abuse in high places gets swept under the proverbial rug, covered up by officials, thought to be far too unbelievable by the average person, ignored by the mainstream media, and therefore, for the most part, forgotten. Yet, thousands or tens of thousands of young children disappear every year, never to return to their families. The mainstream media, each year, they do it every so often with this Amber Alert stuff and, and, and um, parental 
parents running away with kids that, that were assigned to other parents in, in divorce cases, that the mainstream media selects a few examples to showcase every now and then, trumpeting certain cases of child abuse, child neglect, or child abduction until everyone is tired of hearing about them. But this only gives the average citizen a false sense of assurance that if an attempt is made on a child, the guilty are sure to be discovered and apprehended. And they love to show, um, that they love to show traffic cameras and, and cops chasing down fathers that took their own kids, right? In reality, the destroyers of thousands of our children each year are never apprehended. As Susan Ford explained in her book, the rich and powerful use our children in order to entice and to corrupt those whom they want to control. Once they compromise their targets, they virtually own them, and they then support them for positions where they can assert their desired influences. The Jews will corrupt people into abusing children at their parties, at their social gatherings. They use the children for those purposes. Once they get you in that position, they own you. Yeah, you'll be in office, you'll always have a job, and you'll always be doing the dirty work of the Jew. The Jewish-controlled mainstream media is evidently facilitating the corruptors of our society. And Ted Gunderson wrote that the powers that be do not want us to know how many children are permanently missing each year, and therefore those numbers are never published in an accurate and timely manner. All civilization should be up in arms, but the mainstream media keeps them sedated with lies and distractions. I have um, some articles here that, that if I'd have found them in time, I would have probably included them in, in, in this editorial. And this is from, and, and it's, well, well, these things are readily verifiable, right? This is from a website called unitednationsoffilm.com, and it's talking about a Dutch pedophile network. And there's an article here about a Dutch pedophile network, which includes, which has at its top, Bilderberg Group Chairman Elian Davignan, and I can't say his name, right? E-T-I-E-N-N-E is his first name, and D-A-V-I-G. N-O-N is his second name. He's the chairman of the Bilderberg Group. He's apparently in the employee of the Rothschilds. I don't think he's French. And he's being listed at the top of a pedophile network, which includes many of the top judges in the Netherlands and, and many other, well, perceivedly distinguished people business leaders, politicians, that they, um, judges, ministers, and, and they, they, they have sleepover social gatherings where they abuse children. And this is going on in the Netherlands, and, and it's pretty widespread, and I'll be um, researching it further as I get time. And maybe there'll be a follow-up. There probably will be a follow-up essay because there's a few other things that, that I would like to write about in, in this regard, that there are many more modern cases of abused children, which may have been mentioned in this presentation. 
the cases of Johnny Gosh, Kay Griggs, that they may have been mentioned. Pedophilia in Hollywood is a well-known problem. And nothing is ever done about it. There's even a YouTube video with a Jewish actor, Corey Selbin, who has stepped forward to complain about the pedophilia in Hollywood and how he was a victim of it. But, yeah, you know, the Jews, they're um, equal opportunity perverts, right? And, and in Hollywood, it's the Jewish movie producers who are clearly the main perpetrators, and they get away with it indefinitely. That's just the tip of the iceberg. There are hundreds of rabbis in the past 20 years, literally hundreds, who have been charged and convicted of pedophilia. But their cases, and I'll be writing about this, God willing, I'll be writing about this soon, their cases never make the Jewish-controlled media. While the mainstream media trumpets all of the pedophile cases involving Catholic priests, there are many more such cases involving Jewish rabbis which are ignored by the same media. It's absolutely incredible. It, it's, it's a cognitive disconnect. It is so hypocritical. In New York over the past few years, many more rabbis were found to be pedophiles than people of any other profession. And these are only the ones that get caught. I would say that every rabbi is a pedophile. I have no problem saying that. We should think that every rabbi is a pedophile. In a religion where grown men hungrily suck the blood from the penises of newly circumcised boys, there are evidently no moral boundaries whatsoever. And I hope to do a follow-up article on that one day. For many centuries in medieval Europe, when children began to disappear from the villages, the people quickly discovered who was to blame. Therefore, the Jews were expelled from one place or another in Europe on well over a hundred different occasions from the 11th through the 16th centuries alone. In fact, many of the folk tales of old Europe, I am convinced, were designed to warn children about the dangers of getting close to the odd little strangers. Among these are Rumpelstiltskin, the impish demon who could weave gold from straw, but he required a far greater price in return. A princess's firstborn child in the case of the old German fairy tale. There was also Hansel and Gretel, the story about the children who were enticed to their deaths with cakes and candies by a child-eating hag, but fortunate enough to miraculously escape with their lives, at least for the story. How many children didn't escape for their lives? We'll never know. Now, through the Holocaust propaganda and through their other persecution propaganda, the Jews have once again become established as a special and protected class in Christian nations everywhere. And Christian children are disappearing. And we have all kinds of problems with pedophiles because pedophilia is basically a Jewish crime. Yes, non-Jews and whites get caught up in it. Temptation is sometimes, I, I, I don't understand it, but temptation is hard to resist when you're being encouraged by people that you perceive to be your peers, right? 
it, it's hard not to go along. It's hard to resist that sin, but the consequences of not resisting it, well, they're incredible. We shall never know how many Christian children are never found because, so far as we can tell, accurate records are never kept. It is well known today that the Jews in Eastern Europe have been kidnapping or otherwise luring young Christian women to the brothels of Palestine. And once they get there, they are trapped in a life of sex slavery until they are too old and then they are conveniently disposed of. Now, what makes us believe that things should be any different here in the West? When children go missing, the estate homes and the synagogue basements of the Jews are the first places that should be searched. No doubt. Thank you for listening. I will be here next Friday with 2 Peter chapter 3. Praise Yahweh. Good night.